From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Hello again, and welcome to this week's CQ on Congress podcast. I'm Ellen Ferguson, sitting in for Sean Zeller. Today, we're going to examine two issues that Congress has been grappling with for years. First, we examine how lawmakers are responding to the public outcry for gun control legislation in the wake of two mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton that left 31 people dead. 15 to 20 people were killed in a mass shooting in El Paso. It happened at a Walmart store. We're coming on the air this morning with breaking news from Dayton, Ohio, a second mass shooting in the United States in less than 24 hours. Overnight, nine dead in Dayton after a shooter fired a long gun outside on a street in a popular nightlife district. Police were nearby. Then we will have a conversation with an attorney who works with landowners, primarily African-Americans, who are trying to protect family land, some of which dates back to the Civil War. First, we turn to gun violence. Nearly a week after two mass shootings, lawmakers and President Donald Trump are continuing to face intense public pressure to do something to reduce gun violence. On Wednesday, before visiting the grieving communities, President Trump expressed support for background check legislation for gun purchases. Well, I'm looking to do background checks. I think background checks are important. I don't want to put guns into the hands of mentally unstable people or people with rage or hate, sick people. I don't want to, I'm all, I'm all in favor of it. However, Trump made similar comments after the deadly 2018 Parkland High School shooting in Florida, but took no action. And Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine, is advocating several gun control proposals, including expanded background checks and a version of the so-called red flag law that would allow the authorities to take firearms from a person deemed dangerous by a court. If we do these things, it will matter. If we do these things, it will make us safer. Yet much of what is being called for would require congressional action, and it is not at all certain that will occur. On Thursday, more than 200 mayors from both parties wrote Senate leaders urging them to take immediate action on House-passed gun control bills. They want the Senate to return from recess to do this. Joining us to explain this is CQ Roll Call's legal affairs reporter, Todd Ruger. Thank you for coming, Todd. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So is Congress poised to do anything, Todd? Well, that's a great question because it's the question Congress gets asked every time there's another one of these mass shootings at a school or in public uh, in Las Vegas, where dozens were killed at, in Parkland, Florida. And this time, uh, there's there was 32, at least 32 killed in less than a week at three different shootings. And the president called for, uh, you know, real bipartisan uh, movement on, on some legislation to try to stop this. But there really isn't that big of a change uh, in terms of what Congress will allow to happen. One of those uh, blocks is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, who hasn't put stuff on the floor, um, who doesn't have an appetite for any sort of uh, legislation that would control um, guns or add background investigations to, uh, you know, require more background investigations for before somebody can purchase a gun. Well, that has been true 
But could things change if indeed President Trump gets behind some legislation? On Monday, he talked about red flag legislation at the federal level. That's essentially the kind of legislation that Governor DeWine is proposing for the Ohio legislature. Um, Do you see any kind of momentum on that? Well, we do have a little momentum on that because uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has been working on this exact issue for months. He's been teaming up with Richard Blumenthal. He's a, a Democrat from Connecticut. Connecticut is where we had the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, and and uh, he's a, so ever since then, he's been, and before that probably, but he's been a very big advocate for gun control laws and, and doing something to stop access uh, to, to weapons. Uh, for people who are danger to society. And that's what these red flag laws would do. Now, the interesting thing is that in Ohio, they're proposing a red flag law. There are more than a dozen states that have these type of laws already. And the federal legislation that Graham is talking about um, that he hasn't introduced yet, but he says that it would it would basically just assist and encourage states to put these laws in. So it would be a, more of a grant program than it would be a federal law to to do anything uh, and and essentially, it would be to to get like law enforcement tra- or judicial training or even just public awareness about that these programs exist, where a family member or a, a police officer can go in and get somebody's firearms confiscated and prevent them from buying a new firearm if they can prove that this person might be a danger. Many gun control advocates are backing House passed legislation to expand background checks for gun purchases and to extend waiting times for some gun sales. Is it likely the Senate will act on either in the wake of the deadly shooting in El Paso and Dayton? I know I keep asking the same question, but it seems as though there might be something that could happen. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it feels that way. Uh, And Congress has done a couple things in the past year. Uh, About a year ago, they passed um, this thing called Fix Nicks, which supposedly made more – enforced the current laws when it came to doing background checks for people who were buying purchases or purchasing guns. And so they, they did that. But all that did was sort of say, hey, here's the current law and you really need to follow it. So that wasn't a new law. And then they, uh, they did uh, uh, $1 billion over 10 years to uh, – for schools, to harden the schools, to – um, to come up with a plan to keep kids safe. So there are things that um, sort of this public outrage that has bubbled up has has pressed Congress into doing. Um, and not only just the, the public outrage, but a lot of these events themselves, they say, okay, let's let's make sure we, we do something in the wake of this. Uh, but, you know, earlier this year when the House passed this background uh, check bill, which um, the main one would require background checks for every purchase of a firearm, whether it's online or at a gun show uh, that currently isn't the law. And um, it's a very popular uh, Pew Research Service did a, a poll that said 91% of Democrats want that background check and 79% of Republicans. Donald Trump even proposed that maybe we should do that as part of a bigger package on Twitter early in, in the morning uh, on Monday. But when he came out and made his speech, he did not make that legislative proposal, which is uh, a hint that maybe that the Senate doesn't want to take that vote. And it does all come down to, to Senate Majority Mitch, Leader Mitch McConnell and whether he wants to put those bills on the floor. Do you know if we've heard anything from the majority leader about what he might be willing to do since the shootings? Uh, yes. He came out with a statement that's after the president spoke that said that um, he he took the ideas that the president said and, and sent them to the relevant committees, one of them the Judiciary 
Um, one of them, uh, you know, health, uh, the health committee, because he wanted to see the president called for some mental health investigation into how to solve this problem because it isn't just the gun problem. It's a mental health problem is what uh, President Trump said. So he said, Mitch McConnell said, I've sent it to the committees to come up with solutions and work on the the issues that the the president wanted to. But that's a far cry from saying, yes, I think that we need to have a vote on a specific piece of legislation. Um, It it suggests a process that isn't going to be immediate. And the Senate's not going to be back for a month. So who knows what the conversation will be like in a month. Right. The Senate and the House are away on August recess, and a lot of things can happen in between, and issues can cool. Exactly, yes. we'll have to see if there's much wind at their backs when they get here. Well, here's something a little different from the usual questions asked about gun control legislation. One of the things that makes El Paso stand out, besides the sheer number of people who were injured and killed, is the fact that it's being tied to um, domestic terrorism. And it also fits in with a rising concern about white supremacy. Um, is there is there any sort of indication, has there been any kind of work prior to the shooting on uh, tackling uh, domestic terrorism and making that a federal, uh, federal crime? Right. Well, so uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray got in front of the Senate uh, just a few days or a week ahead of this, this, these recent three recent mass shootings and set, and told the senators that uh, you know there's a substantial chunk of of their investigations for domestic terrorism relate to white nationalism and you have some of these attacks at the synagogue in Pittsburgh is another one that comes to mind uh, they recently the 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 shooting at the olive festival no I'm sorry garlic the shooting at the garlic festival in California is now being investigated as domestic terrorism um, and that, that's tied to their motivations for it. The El Paso shooter um, had a manifesto that they're still looking into. It looks like it's his, uh, but it, it talks about um, the invasion from Mexico, uh, and it looks like it's completely based on race um, and some other some other economic issues. After all this discussion, one of the things that Trump said when he addressed the nation was that he was ordering the Justice Department to put resources towards investigating. Uh, counter counterterrorism for domestic terrorism. And uh, that is one thing that I think we could see when Congress comes back. There's a the end of the fiscal year. There's some spending bills that need to be put together. And if they could find a little bit more money for the FBI to tackle uh, domestic terrorism and bolster their investigations, I think that would be a bipartisan thing that uh, that would be an easy way to say that we're responding to, to this growing threat. Okay. Well, perhaps we'll see some, some – um, mo- movement on that and some actual legislation. I want to thank you, Todd, for stopping by and talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, take care. Okay. Now we turn to a long-simmering issue over land ownership. In legal circles, it's called heirs' property, meaning that multiple people or family members have a claim on a piece of property but lack the legal documentation to prove it. Congress has gotten involved through the 2018 Farm Bill to try to help property owners. Joining me today to discuss Ayers Property is Josh Walden, Chief of Operations for the Center for Ayers Property Preservation, which helps landowners with legal aid and other services to protect their property. The center is located in Charleston, South Carolina, and serves a largely African-American clientele. 
Some of them have land that dates back to the Civil War, and it's been handed down from generation to generation. The problem is, there's no clear legal ownership, and the claims on the land multiply with each generation. This also makes some families vulnerable to land speculators and exploitation. Among the people affected by heirs' property complications is Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina. He has said that his share of his great-grandfather's 900 acres dwindled down to about five acres because of multiple claims within the family on the land. Mr. Walden now joins us by phone from South Carolina. Mr. Walden? Uh, Yes, yes. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. Well, I've got some basic questions to start off with. We've got the farm bill um, that was uh, passed in 2018 that a includes provisions to address heirs' property and the problems of multiple claims on family land. Can you define for us or tell us what heirs' property is? And also, um, why didn't people use wills or other legal documentation to kind of safeguard this land that they worked so hard to acquire? Heirs' property is a a legal status of ownership. Uh, And it can differ to some degree from state to state, but generally speaking, it's the fractionalized ownership of a particular piece of property. So over the course of time, when when folks uh, pass away, and they pass away either without a will or they pass away with a will, but no one ever administers the will through the estate court, so if I, I die and I have a wife, and, and maybe by will I wanted my wife to own the property, but I die without a will. Uh, so my wife inherits one half interest, and my five children split the other half interest. Uh, now, what happens when there's no record created? This succession of fractionalized ownership continues over generations. So each one of those five children pass away. Their their interests are further divided amongst their particular line of heirs, which can become problematic in the sense that you might have 60 heirs that own 10 acres. Wow. So anytime uh, they're going to engage an attorney for the purpose of rectifying the problem, in other words, creating the record of who the owners are, uh, you know, irregardless of the problems associated with owning it to that degree fractionally with other folks, but just to create the record of who those people are uh, can be extremely problematic. And, and the, the ownership form itself lends itself to a predatory development historically, and there's a lot of... Uh, Let me ask uh, you this. Yeah. Is, is that primarily, heirs' property, is that primarily a problem in the South? Is that something that happens a lot with people of color? Who's affected sure. by this? Oh, it's, it's, you know, in our particular region, I can tell you that generally speaking, the majority, the vast majority of our clients are African-American. Uh, that being said, the, uh, the, the southern coastal plain and up into the mid-Atlantic plain, actually, along the Gullah Geechee Corridor, uh, is, a, is a distinct problem. Uh, but that being said, uh, you could take our work at the center and, and lift it up and, and set it in Appalachia. You could lift it up and set it in the southwest, and, and you're 100% correct. These are problems that, while there is certainly a racial overlay and a consideration, uh, it's also a socioeconomic overlay. In our region, uh, at least the folks we serve, is primarily African-American, but uh, speaking with other folks from across the country, this is something that certainly affects uh, uh, everyone. Everyone. How, how many acres or how many people are we talking about who are affected? <laughs> Do you have any kind of, is there a national estimate? or? Uh, to, my, uh, to my knowledge, there is no national estimate. Uh, we, uh, we several years ago did an internal uh, and it's extremely difficult to uh, 
to determine. It's an extremely difficult number to determine accurately. Uh, we did a map study. We did it in just a six-county region, mm-hmm. uh, and it was roughly 50, 60,000 50, 50, uh, acres. That's uh, a lot of acres. Property. Sure, and, and that's in a six-county region in a relatively small state. And, and we, we certainly believe that that's an underreported number based on the fact that there are, there are properties out there that have the original owner's name on the bill, and there is no indication that they've passed away because the tax assessor may not know they've passed away. You mentioned that oftentimes it's been a matter of people not knowing that they needed to do certain things in order to um, officially pass along their their property. So is it a, a lack of education or was it a – and you also mentioned a lack of trust in the system. Now, that lack of trust, what was that based on? Well, in, in our circumstances, you know, we deal primarily with, with people of color and, and the Deep South. Um, as we know, there, there are uh, – there, there's certainly a, a rightful distrust of, uh, of, uh, of authority, particularly when you're talking about a generational perspective, when you're talking about uh, a lot of our landowners – what I hear from them very often is, is you know, my grandfather and, and his grandfather told us that we're going to keep everything in-house and we'll protect our land by basically through way, through, by way of what amounts to an oral will. You know, you, you have this piece, you have this piece, you have this piece. Keep the property in the family. But the fact, and the fact that you can't trust uh, attorneys and you can't trust judges and you can't trust the government coming from a perspective of an African American in the deep south and uh or whether you're you're a Caucasian in Appalachia and you don't trust the same groups of folks based on uh, uh the predatory development of mineral rights right uh when you when you talk about that can you kind of like Break that down into plain English. Sure. Are you talking about sure. what a land sure. speculator is showing up at a relative's house and saying, "I've got money for you"? Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Um, what we see very often is is you may have a fractionalized group of landowners who are all heirs to the property. A developer may contact not necessarily an heir who's local, who's living on the property, who's farming or or you know lives on the property they will find a, an heir who's disconnected an heir uh, who's in another part of the country or a local heir who just happens to need money and if they buy the interest of that heir they basically become part of that collective ownership group and there are certain rights as between those owners that can lend the, uh, lend itself to to ending in a forced sale of the property so if I'm a developer and I find you know, a cousin or a couple of folks who are part of this air group, and I and I tell them I'm going to give you a couple of a couple of thousand dollars to quit claim your interest to me. In other words, sign a deed that basically says any interest I own in the property I'm giving to you. So the general so the, impact yeah. of this has been the status having land that's heirs' property. It makes you what vulnerable to land spec- speculators, and it also would seem to make it difficult to use the land as collateral for credit or, you know, especially for, for farmers, if I wanted to get an, an operating loan or something, it would seem that it would be difficult for me to use the land as, a, as collateral. Certainly. Uh, the first thing, uh, you know, if, if a speculator buys their way into the, to the property, very often the next step is to file a quiet title partition action where they request the court sell the property. Uh, and and if, the, uh, if the heirs can't buy that particular party out, 
then generally it generally resulted in a forced sale. Uh, now, to your point in regards to uh, you know a farming perspective, uh, yeah, you are out of the loop as far as using you fully utilizing that land as the asset that most people consider it to be when they're farming. Uh, you don't have clear title, so if you go to a bank, the first thing they're they're going to do is a title search because they're going to want title insurance. Uh, lender's title insurance policy, and and when, when a title search is performed, which is just a search of the public record regarding the ownership of the property and the transactions over time that lead to the current owners, there is no public record. And and the truth is is that we often think about heirs' property being something that's that's old, and we certainly have our share of cases that go back generations. But in South Carolina, at least, it only takes you have ten years from the date of death to. Uh, probate the estate of of a decedent, uh, and if you don't do it within that 10-year period, then you have to take other more complex legal measures to resolve a state issue. The folks that are that are that have this heirs' property are are bound. They they can't utilize the prop- property to its fullest extent. Uh, they can't use it for collateralization. They certainly can't use it to, you know, to purchase a tractor or purchase uh, something that would be useful on their farm if it's an ag situation. Uh, and the land itself is remains vulnerable because as that tenant in common group grows, who knows who's going to come into ownership? You know, a third cousin down the line who may not value the property the way the folks who work the property. Well, that that takes us back to the uh, farm bill that was passed in 2018 by Congress. So there are provisions in there that direct the agriculture department to set up a relending program to try and address this. Now, sure. do you does it go far enough? Well, I think the regs associated with how this is going to come about on the ground, logistically speaking, I can tell you that uh, the fact that there is a relending program to resolve the ownership and succession on farmland is wonderful. It's the idea that it's in the farm bill was, was something that we we had not anticipated uh, at the center. Uh, now, that being said, um, some of the issues that naturally – arise and, and would have to be addressed are, are on one level, uh, how are these loans going to be made if they're going to be collateralized by the very land that uh, is being cleared? Uh, you know, there are a lot of costs on the front end of clearing title. There are costs associated with a title search. There are costs associated with an attorney. There are generally costs associated with a survey. Those are costs that are incurred prior to receiving an order that the title is clear. And in most mortgage loan situations, the title needs to be clear for the purpose of disbursement of the money. Uh, uh, and then once those are cleared and, and there's, there's, there's more uh, likelihood that the title will be cleared, that that could be absorbed or refinanced in the body of the, of the larger loan, I, I, I have no idea. So those are but details think, to come. Yes, those are details that are going to have to be resolved uh, if these are going to be loans. Uh, one last question yeah. I wanted to ask you is how did you get involved with the center? Um, I joined the center in September of 2009 uh, after having practiced for, for about eight years. Uh, uh, went to my uh, law school's alumni website while I was employed elsewhere, University of South Carolina, and, uh, and uh, saw that, and I was intrigued, was intrigued with the concept, was intrigued with uh, this being a, uh, a position where not only you could practice law, but it has, certainly has justice component to it. It certainly has an outreach component. It's uh, it's definitely uh, uh, client intensive, family intensive. Uh, I do. I spend a lot of time when 
when uh, when I was the uh, attorney and supervising attorney and, and a director of legal services and handled cases, spent a lot of time on Saturdays at a church, giving uh, or at a community center, providing legal education and and seeing that process of folks coming in the door and otherwise uh, maybe not having an attorney available to them based on their their ability to pay an attorney for what can be an extremely expensive process and seeing that come to fruition over time and, and seeing that process that's what brought me that's what uh, that's what appeals to me and keeps me here the the, the idea that you're really helping folks and that you that can make a certain a, degree and make a difference yeah. certainly certainly that's uh it's it's uh it's nice to come to work every day and know that you're uh, that you're helping folks well i want to thank you for joining us today thank you i, I enjoyed it myself take care you too That does it for us today. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please rate us.